2: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everywhere I go, I see his face.
0: I just really miss him. Yeah, I miss him too.
1: I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were going to be here after he was gone. <laughs>
2: You going to be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. What? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work. Because I am going on vacation.
0: It's been less than three months since Marvel unspooled Avengers Endgame. But this week, fans find out what occurred after that conclusion. Sony's Spider-Man Far From Home picks up after the events in Endgame and finds Tom Holland's Peter Parker continuing to mourn the death of his mentor, Tony Stark, while heading off for a European vacation with his classmates. There, he faces a new threat. Directed by John Watts and produced by Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal, the filmmaking team included Stephen Tickner, supervising sound editor and sound designer, and Tony Lamberti, supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer, both of whom join us today. I'm Carolyn Giardino. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporters Behind the Screen. Supervising sound editor and designer Steven Tickner previously worked on Spider-Man Homecoming, as well as Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man. His credits also include Surf's Up, Flags of Our Father, and 2010's The Karate Kid. Supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Tony Lamberti also comes with prior Spider-Man credits, having worked on Homecoming, as well as the 2018 Best Animated Feature Oscar winner, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Lamberti earned an Oscar nomination for Inglorious Bastards and won Emmys for and starring Pacho Villa as himself and John Adams. Recent credits include Hotel Transylvania 3 and Green Book. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You you. both bring backgrounds in Spider-Man movies, so I'd like to actually start talking about that. Tony, you worked on Spider-Man Homecoming, and you actually came onto this project right after finishing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Did you draw any inspiration from the Spider-Verse experience and bring it into this film?
2: Absolutely. Um, Having gone through the Spider-Verse experience uh, and then having you to go directly into Far From Home, I knew that there was going to be a lot of heavy sound design in this new movie because uh, Stephen and I had conversations about the fact that on Homecoming, that was kind of the precursor for this movie that's going to be coming out and that the Marvel folks were going to amp up the amount of action, sound design opportunities in this one. So having come from Homecoming, gone into Spider-Verse and then into Far From Home pretty much all in a row... For the most part, I knew that uh, Spider-Verse kind of got me into that mode where I could take all the things that had happened in that and bring them along with me to into uh, Far From Home.
0: And Stephen, you also worked on Homecoming, and you also worked on the original 2002 Spider-Man with Toby Maguire. Mm-hmm. So how did that experience impact this film?
1: Well, you know... I was um, the sound designer on the first Spider-Man, and I still remember sitting on the stage finishing the film with Sam Raimi, and um, I still remember Sam, who is one of the most warmest guys you could ever work with, and he was just so creative, and he always would ask everybody, what do you think? What's your ideas? Give me ideas, you know, for sound. And whatever we did, he was always so accepting. And then I found that that really happened the same way with Homecoming and Far From Home, because you found that same type of community, that same type of interest in sound. And we're always in this position where we're working on a movie that's basically the last phase. And there's so many things going on that the sound pulls it all together, but so much had to be done before we get there. And when you have people that give you that trust, that give you that sense of responsibility, there's no better gift. And really, that's exactly what happened between the very first Spider-Man and these last two Spider-Mans was a great sense of trust. And it's the best anybody could ever hope for.
0: And in this film, it takes place following the events of avengers endgame which wasn't out when you were making this movie so did you know anything about how endgame was going to end well
1: it was also a time where they also lost stanley so there was a lot going on and it was a very hard time when that news was was received so there was a, a real pause and it was a real struggle because everybody knew that Endgame was the last movie that Stan Lee would be in. And there was something going to be missed. We didn't know the details of Endgame. We just knew that the beginning of this film was the way to give some closure to the movie. And, you know, it also had somewhat of a, a, a sweet way of saying thank you to everybody in the start of this film with the, the first song of the film, which may surprise people, but it, it really is a way of saying, you know, we were all blessed in the sense that you come to a movie theater, you forget whatever the world you're living in, and you get to experience something that entertains you. And that's where we're blessed. And that's where we, Tony and I thrive on our lives is because this gives us A lot of joy and a lot of, you know, uh, self-fulfillment. Yeah, that's really uh, the thing about Endgame. It was such a good movie. And then, like, how do you go from there? What do you do? And I think that that's where Spider-Man came in strong because it's such a character that everybody loves.
2: We also were told, you know, that one of the details that we were given early on was that you know this basically is going to pick up right at the end of endgame so it was going to be like this is going to flow from the movie that just happened right into it and also uh, reiterating what steve said you know spider-man is such a beloved character that it's such a great way to kind of end this third phase of the mcu and get people feeling good you know and and make them happy at the end before they begin the next phase
0: When it starts, he's grieving some of the Avengers and particularly Tony Stark. So you actually knew before the Avengers Endgame came out that some of the conclusions. It was
1: one of those we got to screen. So you had to
0: keep really quiet. (laughs)
1: Well, we we got to screen an early cut when we first started. And it was one of those, oh, moments like, oh, oh. And you're just like, okay, um, hmm. Now, we can't say anything, of course, because they've entrusted us with this information. And it's important that we keep special moments that Endgame's going to carry into this film to ourselves. So, yeah, it was hard. It was very hard.
0: (laughs) hard. Well, let's start talking about your work on this movie. I'd like to start by explaining your roles. So, Stephen, you were supervising sound editor and sound designer. And Tony, you were supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer. For the uninitiated, would you explain those roles?
2: For me, you know, this is the second time working with Steve on a big movie in the role of doing sound design from the very beginning. So we started at the very, very beginning of the movie, And basically, you know, sound designing is sound creation. So it's making sound effects that have never been heard before or sound effects custom-made to picture, and we knew that there was going to be a lot of visual effects in this movie, of which there are many, many shots where it's nothing but visual effects. So um, the sound design process is creating those things from scratch and custom-making sound effects to go with the picture. The re-recording side of that is then taking all those elements and blending those together in a mixing stage, essentially recreating the theater experience, and then taking that along with the dialogue, music, and everything, and creating the track that ultimately the audience hears in the movie theater.
1: And to follow up with what Tony said, for me, the supervising part of the film, it's creating a team and being able to be a liaison between the picture editors, The director and producers to make sure that their message gets put into sound. And you don't know what the message is necessarily, no one writes it out for you. You have to interpret the ideas because they're all evolving. You don't see all the visual effects when you start a movie. You, there's a lot of gaps that you have to fill. So everything is, is evolves. And so when you're supervising sound on a film like this, you have to look at it like layers. And you have to say to your crew that let's just take this one step at a time. Let's make passes. Let's create sounds. Let's start introducing some of these sounds to the picture editors, to the directors, to producers, and get their feedback to see if this is what makes them feel emotion. Because really that's what the sound is supposed to do is to create emotions. And I sit with my crew and go over the material and give them the ideas and suggestions that are coming through so that we can keep evolving the sound in the direction that the picture is taking. Because even the visual effects are changing. And even that changes everything. So in, in one point through the movie, there were these drones that you see in the film and they shoot guns. Well, at some point they said, you know, it can't just be shooting guns. Let's let them shoot flamethrowers and let's have sonic cannons as well. And I went, oh, great. <laughs> and said, hey, Tony, here you, here you go. Yeah. Let's create that. And you say to yourself that and in hindsight, it's so cool because you're like, what a great idea. But when you're in it and you're like, OK, I've really got to come up with something special now. And if you're not challenged in this business, then you shouldn't be in this business because that's what we want to be, is challenged. And that's what makes us love what we do. And nothing challenged me more on any film In my career than this film. And I'm blessed that I was given the opportunity to have that challenge because with a great group of people like Tony and Kevin O'Connell and Vanessa Lapato, who is our ADR supervisor and dialogue supervisor, you could not have accomplished this. This was a team effort. And then there's editors and other designers and assistants and and it just takes a crew to steer the ship in the right direction and so that's what supervising is is basically you captain the ship and try to get it steered the sound in the right direction so that when you're being entertained you're not thinking about the sound you just think it's real because it's all happening so quickly you're just absorbed in the movie yeah you get into the moment yeah the, the greatest gift I can say is is that when you're not thinking about sound and you're just enjoying the film that's, that's the best that I can ever hope for <laughs>
2: No, no, you don't. You
0: okay? So for Far From Home, since you mentioned the drones... What did you record for those sequences, and how did you put them together?
1: Well, there's a combination of things. Uh, The guns are a big deal, of course. And, you know, we have a lot of designed guns that we worked with, and we also have a combination of layers and layers and layers of sounds. So we really try to uh, create everything in the box to make that special. There wasn't a time for us to uh, go out in the field and just record raw guns. But being in the business for 30 years, we had, between the two of us, a gun collection. We did actually go out and record the actual Audi e-tron, which we got one of the first cars delivered to the United States. And everybody was saying, well, why would you want to record an electric car? It doesn't make any sound. And we're like, oh, because just in case, we've got to be careful. Well, we didn't know this, but we're at the airport out in California City recording the car. And the car pulls up and it makes sound. And we're that like, sounds like a spaceship. It sounds like a spaceship. <laughs> and because it, they put some type of sound system in so that when the car and it goes by the speed like a real engine, because you don't want cars sneaking up on you anymore like the old Priuses. So it actually had all these sounds and we we're just like flabbergasted. So there was field recording, but not for guns and not for fire torches and right.
2: The drones were you know manufactured again from scratch using various, uh, like Steve said, layers of sound: jet turbines, um, drone sounds, uh, you know, uh, humming sounds to get the motors for those things, machine whirrings those kinds of things in order to get the propulsion system. So it was attacked in layers. It was like the thing has a propulsion system, it moves around, it has guns that, that uh, use servos to, to make these things rotate around. So every little motion, we would try different things to try to get it to come to life. And like Steve said, it was uh, many, many layers of things to get those drones to, uh, to play in the movie.
0: That must have been a challenge because there are a lot of drones in yes. the <laughs> Yeah,
2: exactly. When you see shots where we'd have one or two in the shot, and then the next time we'd see the reel, there'd be like 10 of 15 of them. And then it was like, by the end, you know, there's shots where there's hundreds of them. So it was like it just kept escalating and escalating. So,
0: The film also has several big action sequences with the elemental creature who takes the shape of earth, wind, fire, and water. What was recorded and how did you mix them together to get the final sounds?
1: I can tell you that some of the vocals uh, were recorded. We used a um, a sanken mic, and the sanken mic records at a frequency that you can't hear at. And so, when you record something like the sound of you putting your hand through water, and then you record that at a frequency you can't hear, and then when you pitch it down, all of a sudden, all those frequencies become you can hear them, and it creates a like a, a unique sound it's got a lot of body to it a lot of weight to it so we use things like dry ice for some of the vocals and you take dry ice and you record it with a second mic and then you pitch that down and it gives it this eerie feel to it and we did some of that on foley we did some of that in editorial and we just kept experimenting with it because the director wanted this rich sound but he also didn't want it to sound like something that was a uh, canned out of a box you could take a bird and slow it down and it sounds like a creature but that's like anything else you can take a lion and slow it down so we try to use all these different elements that weren't from the regular you know tricks of the trade right right
2: yeah animal sounds and things like that you know you, you can play with to get a creature to come to life vocally but uh, we tried to steer away from those kinds of things to come up with something unique.
0: And then because he changes in size and sometimes he's just massive, how did you approach the mix?
2: Well, um, that was a a combination of using Dolby Atmos because we mixed it in in native Dolby Atmos. And so we're able to use uh, the Atmos system to really enhance the size of the creature as it grows over time, we can spread it around the room and make it bigger or smaller depending on what we want to do, and just playing with those the different elements. We had you know high, high, mid, low elements where we could you know really have if we had needed a low guttural thing to really give it size and weight, we could accentuate that. So normally those kinds of things, creatures, and especially you try to have the various layers of high, mid, low frequency stuff, so you can like do those kinds of things, make it big, small, whatever, scale it accordingly. They were born in stable orbits within black holes, creatures formed from the primary elements, air, water, fire, earth. The science division had a technical name. We just called them elementals.
0: Versions of them exist across our mythologies.
2: Turns out the myths are real. Like Thor. Thor was a myth and now I study him in my physics class. These myths are threats. They first materialized on my earth many years ago. I was part of the last battalion left trying to stop them. All we did was delay the inevitable.
0: The elementals are here now, attacking the same coordinates. Our satellites confirm it. We have one mission. Kill it. There's also several scenes where Spider-Man moves, and I'm saying this loosely, between multiple dimensions, if you will. Sonically, how did you uh, bounce back and forth between those?
1: Well, there you have the sense of not just hitting the audience with just tons of audio, but also finding times to, like, make breaks in the audio. So there's a couple scenes. There's two special scenes where, actually three, but two that you notice where we just took all the audio out on purpose so that, one, the audience has a a second to rest. Two, the incoming audio just hits you with such a sonic, like, like overload that you're just taken aback, kind of like somebody sitting in a uh, 700-horsepower car and flooring it. And and that's what we tried to do. We tried to floor it. And especially in what's called the illusion battle. And then also uh, the very end battle of the movie. So in those two things, we tried to create these layers that would drag you in to the point where this could get exhausting because it's just sonic overload. But yet what it did is, oh, there's a story being told. So we try to tell a story with sound. Then let the dialogue tell some of the story. Then, of course, obviously our actors doing you know this amazing job in this universe, and then let sound do its job, and we try to balance all of that out while Tony and Kevin were mixing it. Yeah,
2: it was uh, definitely a push-pull kind of thing where it was like, what's happening in any given shot? Is it are we focusing on what the dialogue's doing? What's carrying the load? Is it the dialogue that's doing that? Is it the music that's doing that? Is it sound effects that are doing that? Maybe it's the silence that's doing that. And just weaving that all together so that it creates, over time, you watch the scene and you're like, wow, how did that happen? And you're feeling like you're on this ride and that's what's taking you into the multiple dimensions.
0: And that was mixed here at Sony Pictures? That's on... correct, on
2: the, on the Cary Grant Theater and the brand new Atmos setup, the very first show that was mixed in that theater with the Atmos setup, brand, oh, okay. brand new.
0: Let's talk about the gadgets, which was the most fun to create.
1: (sighs) Wow. Um, I'm trying to think because what you're reminding me of is um, I have to mention this. Early on before I even started the show, I got a phone call from Dan Lebenthal, who is one of the picture editors. And he just said, and he was the picture editor on the last Spider-Man as well. I just want to give you a heads up. This movie is as busy or busier than any Avenger film that's ever been made. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but okay. And he's one of the most loveliest guys you could ever work with. He's just, he's just, he's an amazing person. And um, so when we're thinking about the gadgets, I always go back to um, originally in Homecoming was droney. And droney was this this spider uh, drone that came out of Spider-Man's suit. And that was one of my most favorite gadgets to create. And then so now when you think about this film. In terms of gadgets,
2: really the the, the biggest thing was um, that had to be created was the, the gadgets for all the drones, right? Because they're such a big player in what's going on. It was like Steve alluded to earlier, was that, you know, we started off, we did a whole pass of the movie where these drones were blasting guns. And filmmakers watched it, they did a friends and family screening and they realized that it was just too much. It was too assaultive. So then the idea came of like, let's let's do uh, sonic cannons, let's do flamethrowers, let's do all kinds of other things that these things that can actually take the sound pressure off of our ears so that over time, the audience doesn't get fatigued. In terms of gadgetry, that's kind of what's the biggest hurdle to get across, like, what does a sonic cannon sound like? We went and referenced uh, other movies where they had similar kind of things, and it was like, kind of like, you know, so um, we did some various things in terms of trying to get those things to play and would send them to the picture department, get feedback from them, adjust them, do whatever, and, and they settled on some of that.
1: And the other thing is uh, Mysterio. He he shoots lasers, and those had to have their own unique sound. And the thing is is that that was the other thing that was really important. We couldn't have it sound the same over and over again, but we had to make it sound like there was something familiar about it so that each one had emotion. Now, you're not going to think about it while you're watching the movie, but also it doesn't sound like a repetitive sound over and over again. And so the blasts had to be invented and created. And again, we referenced a lot of the Marvel films just to give ourselves a sense that we were taking this in a whole new direction so that we could create, you know, mysterious sounds. Even the helmet going on and off. What's the sound? How do we make that work? There were a lot of times before we even knew there was a helmet in the movie because the visual effects weren't there. And then the next thing you know, there's a helmet popping on and off. Okay, what does that sound like? Even the simplest thing that you would take for granted, Happy's jet. Well, that was a different jet. That jet had to have its own unique sounds, too. So we had to go through everything and create a family of sounds for this film.
2: The thing about the Marvel Universe is they have this uh, kind of established uh, palette of sound that they like and are accustomed to, that they get the similar feeling in a lot of the Marvel movies. The tech, the gadgetry tech sounds, has a sound to it. So we had to, be faithful to that but also try to make it different so that is also very challenging because it's like okay great it's a stark jet but what can we do to make it a little bit different from every other time it's ever shown up in a marvel movie so it's quite a bit of fun actually because you go okay here's how it was but what can we do to make it different And in addition you know the spidey suit iron spidey suit is in the beginning of the movie and that had been established in previous movies and so we had to pay homage to that, but also make it special for this
1: movie.
0: There's also technology, Edith, that has a voice. So how did you come upon her voice?
1: (laughs) Well, Edith is actually our first assistant picture editor. Uh, Her name is Dawn King. And Dawn, in the first Homecoming, was we used her for um, suit ladies' voice temporarily until they casted her. And in this film, everybody was just like, what are we doing? And it wasn't our call. She sounds great. She should be Edith. And so Don became Edith. And it's cool because it's like, you actually know this person as a friend and somebody that you care about. And you're like, what a great little thing for the rest of your life. You're the voice of Edith. And so then we treated her voice, Kevin did, in a way that made sense. So when you're inside of uh, Peter Parker's head, It's at most speakers everywhere. The voice of Edith is in every speaker. And then when you're actually seeing Peter, the voice just goes to the center speaker like it's just him and her having a conversation. And it was just with some basic processing just to give it a little electronic voice, not heavily detailed, because when you're mixing, you really want to be careful that you're understanding everything that's being said. So you don't want to overdo it either. So you got to be careful, even though we have all the toys in the world to create things. uh, When it comes to telling a story, that's the one thing you don't want to mess with too much.
0: Stark left these for you. Hello, Peter. Would you like to see what I can do? Initiating strike.
1: Initiating what now?
2: The same thing with Mysterio and how he's treated when he's in and out of the helmet. It was... All, Kevin tried all kinds of different treatments, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it was very subtle in terms of when he's not in the helmet and when he's in the helmet, because they just, it pulls you out of it. If it's too treated, it's like, you know, you can't really follow the story and intelligibility drops off. So that was those kinds of things were paid. We paid attention to those kinds of things. So that people just stayed in the story.
0: Right. Well, I'd like to learn how each of you got into the business. So let's start with Tony. Where are you from and how did you get started?
2: Um, Well, I was, uh, okay, how far back do I go? Um, You know, I grew up playing music and was very interested in recording studio technology as a young child. And as I got older, I would play with tape recorders and and all kinds of various things, along with musical instruments. And then ended up going to uh, music school on the East Coast, uh, uh, Berklee College of Music. And there, they actually had a recording and engineering program that I went to specifically, went there for that, not for the musical part of it, and did that. And then once I got out of school, uh, even before I got out of school, I was working in various recording studios around town in Boston and... Around the time, I'd, I'd been doing that for two or three years, and then the economy got real bad on the East Coast, and I had a bunch of friends who were working out here in the film business, and they said, come out here, there's, there's more work going on out here than we know what to do with. And so I uh, came out and got in the film business and been doing it ever since.
1: Well, I started a totally different way. <laughs> um, I graduated with my degree in political science from Cal State Northridge. And... Um, It was a situation where I was just looking to get an internship, and somebody suggested to my uh, dad at the time that this digital thing is something that could happen. So he got me an internship here at this studio 31 years ago, and after doing an internship right out of college, uh, they offered me a job working nights, cutting old... TV shows just for uh, Restoration. And after doing that for a year, then I was working on a a TV show, Cutting Nights, and a sitcom came in, and they said they needed your help, and they'll be in at 1 o'clock, and I stayed till 4 in the morning for them to show up. And then I spent 48 hours working on a sitcom for James L. Brooks. And that night, they turned around and said, you're supervising that show, and you're working days. and. Digital was not considered anything. Nobody wanted to touch a computer. And film was king. And so I rode the technology wave, and I kept embracing every bit of technology I could. And when all of a sudden the technology started to expand, they needed people who understood it, and I had basically worked here around what I would call the Harvard School of Sound, because this department was such a big department and embraced every bit of new technologies that I could. And then at some point in uh, 1998, they said, oh, hey, we want you to do a little temp mix in a room with Paul Verhoeven. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting there mixing a temp dub with Paul Verhoeven. And I was like, my hands were shaking. And everything that occurred for me was because of the sense that I embraced every opportunity and I embraced anything that I could learn. And I just knew that teaching and getting taught and being open to all these creative people would pay off one day. And, and it's still a learning process. You never stop learning. I don't think you can change who you are if that's your approach. And so that is my approach, is just to never stop learning and, and actually be humble and grateful for, for the opportunities every time they come.
2: It's one of the greatest things about what we do is that it's every project's unique and every project, even as much experience as we've had for as many years as we've been doing it, every project, there's something to learn and something you can take from the last project to the next project and just get smarter and, and better. And it's really great.
0: What does it mean to you to be part of this franchise?
1: Well, for me, I mean, like I was a kid, you know, looking at the comic books, watching the cartoons, never in my wildest dreams would I ever think that I would, you know, uh, get a chance to be in this world. And then to be a part of people, when you see, and you're sitting next to uh, Kevin Feige and Victoria Alonza and Lou Esposito, and you realize that there's just a love affair with these characters with Marvel. And you see that there's this sense of, like, the most wonderful thing that was ever created were these characters. And you're a part of that, and you were a kid, and you're like, I can't believe I'm even sitting here being part of this. It's just unthinkable. For me, it just the
2: Spider-Man character is so iconic And one of the reasons Marvel wanted to get involved, even though Sony owned the character, is because Spider-Man is Kevin Feige's most loved character. So he wanted to be involved in that any way, shape, or form and got together with Amy Pascal, who had made the deal to get Spider-Man the character for Sony Studios. And you can just see the passion that they have for it, and it's uh, it's really amazing to and and you universally you ask people what you know what's your favorite character and hands down people go Spider Man Spider Man's it you know so um, so we're really really fortunate to to be able to work on these movies.
0: Tell us about working with Kevin Feige and the other producers.
2: Well, it varies, but on um, this one was a little bit unique compared to Homecoming, only in that they were coming off of the run of Captain Marvel, Endgame and and then Spider-Man, and so and they're super hands-on. So because they were so involved in trying to finish Endgame, we didn't get them until the very, very end of this one. But uh, on Homecoming, they came multiple playbacks, full playbacks, notes, sit there through the notes. They're very, very hands-on people.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I think from uh, the lesson I learned is uh, the bigger the films, the more people involved, the harder the work and when you see other people work as hard as they do you want to work hard and that's what you're signing up for is put everything into this there is no shortcut to make films like this it takes a lot of hard work and you know John Watts was very involved with me i was embedded with the picture uh, editorial for almost 5 months so I would see them and we would talk and we would share, you know, what was going on in the film and, and evolve. And, you know, the nice thing about it was there were times when you're just crossing the hallway and a conversation would come up and it didn't have to be formal. So it was kind of a very free flowing of, uh, of ideas. And then, you know, Victoria Alonzo would come in to visit and talk. It was more of a free flow. It was more of a, this is family. And this movie is everything because, Every film I've ever seen, there's just a sense of when people are devoting their lives to it. And we devoted our lives to this film. Part of our life is in this movie. I mean, I know Tony's probably the same way. If you ask me about my life, I can tell you what film I was working on. Yeah. And, and, and I can tell you that my life for the last almost eight months, what I was doing and what was going on in my life because of Spider-Man. And you're just, you know, at the very end of the day, you're just thrilled because you, you've you got this part in your heart and you know this film is really good.
0: Thank you for joining us and congratulations on the film.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.